community, go to disabilityjustice at kboo.org to contact us and give us your ideas. Director. Our membership director maintains relationships with KBOO members and listeners. Create a process to meet or exceed fundraising goals and manage the membership database. For a complete job description and instructions on how to apply, visit kboo.fm employment. Apply by March 15th. KBOO is an affirmative action and equal opportunity employer. This again was a situation of police officers coming into a private residence finding two men having an evening together and arresting them. And in in this context, the officers dragged the two men down to the station in their underwear and kept them overnight. And it was a deliberate humiliation of these two men. And it gave us the opportunity to try again at the Supreme Court to challenge criminal laws against same-sex relationships. Welcome to Sprouts from Pacifica, radio from the grassroots. Sprouts is a weekly program that showcases radio productions by independent community media. We bring local stories to a global audience, produced at a different location every week. This week, we present Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. There are some religious people, congregations, and religions that support LGBTQ people. In the Episcopal Church, Bishop Gene Robinson was the first openly gay bishop, but his consecration led to a worldwide split in the church over the issue of homosexuality. In New York City, Congregation Beit Simchat Torah is an LGBTQ welcoming synagogue with an openly gay leader, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum. Both Bishop Gene and Rabbi Kleinbaum were guests on earlier editions of Outcasting. You can listen to their interviews on our website, outcastingmedia.org. But historically, Many religions have condemned LGBTQ people. The Catholic Church has described homosexuality as an intrinsic disorder and encouraged people to condemn the sin, not the sinner, as if people can just rip sexuality out of their lives without inflicting great harm on themselves. Any number of religious counselors continue to practice conversion or reparative therapy to cure people of being gay, even as a growing number of states and even some other countries 
recognized that this treatment is ineffective and potentially dangerous. We did a series in early 2020 on conversion therapy. It's also available at outcastingmedia.org. As the law is catching up with growing public acceptance of LGBTQ people, and as we have secured a number of important civil rights, there is a movement determined to put us firmly back in our place, as they would have it. Cake shops and florists claim that they're entitled to deny their services to us because they say that providing services to LGBTQ people would violate their religious liberty. This discrimination would never be seen as legitimate if it were directed at other minority groups. Just imagine it. A shop owner says, my religious liberty prevents me from serving black people or Jewish people, so go away. It's unthinkable that that would be seen as acceptable in today's world. And of course, there are businesses where the stakes would be much higher if it becomes the law that businesses can just turn away LGBTQ people based on a religious objection. So is there any legitimacy when a business owner cites religious liberty to justify denying service to LGBTQ people? What are the contours of religious liberty? What's supposed to happen when someone citing religious liberty discriminates against LGBTQ people, thus denying their equality? What does equality mean in the United States? Does one take precedence over the other when equality and religious liberty come into conflict? This is the fourth part of our conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer. Jenny is the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. In earlier parts of this series, we were talking about how religious liberty and LGBTQ equality can coexist peacefully under the Constitution, but also how the guarantee of equality hasn't yet made LGBTQ people truly equal. On the last edition of Outcasting, we started talking specifically about impact litigation, bringing lawsuits in the courts to affect policy-level changes as well as to protect the rights of people whose rights have been violated. Windsor and Obergefell, the Supreme Court's landmark marriage equality cases, are examples. In them, the Supreme Court declared that the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, was unconstitutional, thus establishing marriage equality for same-sex couples throughout the country. When we left off, Lucas and Jenny had begun talking about the strategy involved in finding individuals or organizations whose issues clearly present the policy questions to the court. Welcome back to Outcasting, Jenny. Thanks so much, Lucas. It's good to be here. How do you look for clients to represent in this kind of litigation? Well, sometimes people come to us. They know that Lambda Legal is the oldest and largest legal organization for the LGBTQ movement doing this type of work. We've been doing it for almost 50 years now. So often people call us. We have legal help desks that are staffed by attorneys. We get well over 6,000 calls every year from people who are looking for legal help, who are asking for legal help. We try to give each caller some information to help them with their own situation. But we're not in a position to represent all those people, obviously. But sometimes we can tell by the nature of the problem that they're calling about, that their case is relating to a problem that affects a lot of people. And their particular situation seems like one that would allow us to tackle the problem in a bigger way on behalf of, of that person, but also on behalf of the movement as a whole. There also are some situations where we see a law or a rule that's discriminatory that we want to tackle. This can be, for example, when North Carolina passed its so-called bathroom bill, HB2, and we knew it was discriminatory and we wanted to litigate to challenge it and to take it down. 
And so we engaged in conversation with a range of people in North Carolina. We knew that certain people would be in a better position to be a litigant, maybe because their job security was good or their life circumstances involved enough support. We know that being a plaintiff in this type of case can be very stressful. It often involves being in a public spotlight. Sometimes it involves being a target of some very mean-spirited things that are said, whether it's on social media or in public life in various ways. I mean, people who oppose us sometimes can be very cruel and sometimes seem to not realize that they're directing hateful comments to people that are real people. Sometimes they're parents, sometimes they're young people, whoever they may be, they have feelings. So we always try to pay attention when we're looking to challenge a discriminatory law or policy. Who would have a legal claim? Some people would have a legal claim, other people wouldn't. And who seems like they have the good emotional supports or or family supports or other supports so that they could take on that public role and be able to handle it. So there are a lot of things that go into the calculus, but sometimes we do this type of litigation on behalf of an organization, a membership organization that represents a group of people. And sometimes we do that because people's privacy interests may be very important and the law allows us to represent a membership organization and to protect people's individual privacy. This sometimes can be the case if we're dealing with things having to do with somebody's health condition, for example. There's a range of circumstances where people's interests are genuine and they can be tested by a court, but we don't have to put them in a public spotlight. So there's a number of different considerations in, in how we do it, and it, it depends what type of law or policy we're challenging and the location and what the rules may be for that particular situation. What a great insight into your work. So let's talk now about the court's landmark LGBTQ cases for the last 25 years or so. Let's start with the Romer case from 1996. Well, the Romer case was out of the state of Colorado. This was a legal challenge that we did after the voters in Colorado changed the state constitution to make it harder for lesbian, gay, and bisexual people to have legal protections as opposed to anyone else in the state. Colorado Amendment 2 said that everybody else could have protections at the local level or the state level. LGB people could only have protections at the state level. So we challenged that, and the case went to the Supreme Court. There were good successes in the state courts that came first, and and then the state of Colorado asked the U.S. Supreme Court to consider the issue, and it went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decided that case in May of 1996 in a decision that really was the first time that the U.S. Supreme Court recognized equality rights under the U.S. Constitution for lesbians, gay men, and bisexual people, that equality right. What the Supreme Court said was that it had to do with political treatment or the, the way we engage with the legal system, but by taking this particular group of people and treating us as unequal and requiring that we had a, a higher burden or a higher hill to climb to get legal protections, that that was unequal treatment and that the government did not have an adequate reason to treat us differently. There were two important parts of the court's decision. One was to say that notions of morality and sort of religious or moral condemnation of LGBT people 
was not good enough, that the government can't be enacting notions of morality or disfavoring a group of people based on some people's idea of morality. So that was a huge breakthrough and and quite different from the approach that the Supreme Court had used in the Georgia sodomy case, the, the Bowers versus Hardwick case decided in 1986. So it's only 10 years later, but the court was taking quite a different approach. So morality is not a good enough justification. And number two, that the other ideas that were put forward or the other justifications that were advanced to explain this unequal treatment just didn't seem to hold water. The court sort of walked through what the different ideas were, and this was a, a decision written by Justice Kennedy. It was the first of his big decisions recognizing legal rights for for LGBT people. He said, you know, these these different government justifications just seem really disconnected from what the voters have done here. I mean, for example, saying, well, we want to we want to conserve government civil rights resources, civil rights enforcement resources for other types of discrimination. And he said, well, you know, but that doesn't really make sense. You, you've got plenty of resources to do civil rights enforcement. There was no showing that the state was having difficulty or that Denver, Aspen, and Boulder, the, the three local governments that had these protections that they were running out of resources to tackle, say, race discrimination because they were doing LGBT protections, they have plenty of ability to do that. So it was a, it was a breakthrough in terms of recognizing the basic idea of equality under the law and that the government has to come up with some reasons. If there's going to be unequal treatment under the law, the reasons have to have some logical relationship to what the state is doing. They can't just make up anything that has no logical relationship to the unequal treatment being imposed. So it was, it was quite a breakthrough. And then in 2003, the Supreme Court overturned Bowers v. Hardwick in the case of Lawrence v. Texas. That was a, another huge breakthrough, and we were very, very proud and honored at Lambda Legal to have represented the two gentlemen that were the plaintiffs, uh, John Lawrence and Tyrone Garner, who were the, were the couple, um, the two litigants in that case. This was another challenge to a sodomy law. It was the Texas law that specifically targeted same-sex activity. And this, again, was a situation of police officers coming into a private residence, finding two men, having an evening together, and arresting them. And in, in this context, the officers dragged the two men down to the station in their underwear and kept them overnight. I mean, it was a deliberate humiliation of these two men. And it gave us the opportunity to try again at the Supreme Court to challenge criminal laws against same-sex relationships. And this again was Justice Kennedy. Many important things about this decision, but among the things that he did was recognize that we're talking about relationships. This ju wasn't just about sexual acts governed by a criminal code. It was about a type of conduct that is important for adult relationships. And the decision talks about the fact that this is private, adult, consensual conduct in a home, not commercial sex, 
and that this is absolutely where the core of constitutional privacy rights are supposed to apply. These rights that had been recognized with respect to married different sex couples, with respect to individuals, so an individual person's right to access contraception for her, her own needs, whether she's married or not, a right that went back further than that of parents to control the upbringing of their children and these basic rights to run one's own life. And Justice Kennedy recognized that it's the same right when we're talking about same-sex couples having an adult sexual relationship. An important part of the analysis there was that Justice Kennedy recognized that it was a fundamental liberty interest of the person, not a right to engage in homosexual sodomy. In other words, the, the point was that the right was general. It was a protection of what? A type of a privacy right that everybody has, not a narrowly defined right of a particular person, that this group could have the right and that group would not have the right. And part of what he describes is that there are some there were some of these laws that just applied to same-sex conduct and other laws that prohibited oral and anal sex regardless of who was engaging the conduct the sodomy statute sometimes targeted gay people and sometimes applied to everybody and his decision said we could have decided this just on equality grounds and said you can't, Texas can't target just gay people. The Texas law was called the homosexual conduct law. You can't just target gay people. But he said, actually, in the world we live in, these laws are not justified. And if we said Texas can only have this kind of law if it applies to everyone, as a practical matter, that would still apply much more heavily against same-sex couples. It's all unconstitutional. So that was another breakthrough, including the specific language that he includes in the decision that the Bowers versus Hardwick decision was wrong when it was decided, it's wrong today, it's hereby overturned. It was a vindication of what so many people had worked for, for the intervening getting close to 20 years, to shift the public understanding that the constitutional rights need to apply to everybody. There's no gay exception to the Equal Protection Clause or to the Due Process Clause. These are rights that must be enjoyed by all of us if they're going to really have meaning. And that was another important breakthrough at the Supreme Court. This is Sprouts from Pacifica, this week featuring Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Lucas is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Land Illegal the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. So the courts began to recognize LGBTQ equality. And before we get to the marriage cases, tell us about DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. Well, we had a movement really gathering steam to seek the freedom to marry. 
many people, I mean, there were, there were cases seeking the freedom to marry that started in the 70s, and they did not get very far. And there were other cases in the 80s that got a little farther but didn't actually succeed. In the beginning of the 1990s, litigation that started in Hawaii began to get some traction when the Hawaii Supreme Court ruled in 1993 that the state marriage restriction looked a lot like sex discrimination. This is a theme that now may be quite familiar because this way of understanding sexual orientation discrimination has evolved and more and more people have come to recognize that, of course, it's sex discrimination. But when the Hawaii Supreme Court recognized that there appeared to be a valid legal claim here and sent the case back down to the Hawaii trial court where Lambda Legal prepared to have a trial, people in other parts of the country on the mainland, across the mainland, recognized that that decision in Hawaii could have implications for the rest of the country because the general rule across the country at that time was that a marriage that's validly entered in the place where it's entered will be recognized in other states unless there is some very strong public policy reason not to recognize it. But the default rule was very clear and straightforward. Once you're married, you're married and you can travel around the United States and you're still married. So that became a, a prompt, if you will, for those who really opposed the idea of marriage equality to start trying to change state laws and eventually that effort got some traction in Congress. And Congress passed a law called the, the so-called Defense of Marriage Act, which came to be referred to often as DOMA, that had two parts. One part said that the federal government would not respect marriages of same-sex couples that were validly entered under state law. And another part said that states do not have to give recognition, or we, the, the constitutional term is full faith and credit, to marriages entered in other states. So two different parts, a, a state part and a federal part to that law. It was very deeply disappointing that various members of Congress and members of the Senate passed that, that bill quite resoundingly. There were, as I remember, about 10 members of the Senate that opposed it, and there were certainly members of the House that opposed it. But it, it passed with strong majorities in both houses, and President Clinton signed it into law. And it, it stood as a statement of disrespect and disapproval in federal law for quite a few years. We weren't in a position to challenge that law until we had some married couples under state law, until we had some couples that were married nobody had legal standing, nobody had a legal claim to challenge the federal government, for example, disrespecting their marriage. They had to have a marriage first. So DOMA was on the books for quite a number of years while we continued to do the work in states to build public support for the freedom to marry affirmatively and also to resist as best we could the efforts state by state to change state law and then to change many state constitutions to make marriage discrimination explicit. That is to get rid of the, or to create an exception to the longstanding law on the books of every state that said, if you're married, you're married. They created these special anti-gay exceptions to say, if you're married, you're married. Oh, but not if your spouse is of the same sex as you. 
uh, those marriages we won't res- we we won't respect. And it it was a period of very intense legal work, and political organizing, and and public engagement on the subject of why marriage matters to all of us as a legal matter, as a principle, as as social recognition that set the stage for more litigation to come. Thank you so much, Jenny. We're out of time for now, but we'll continue this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Thanks, Lucas. Pleasure being with you. This fall has certainly been eventful. We've got a few minutes left, so to close out this edition, let's talk about a few significant things besides COVID that have happened over the past few months. The first was the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a liberal icon on the Supreme Court who voted to advance LGBTQ equality and all of the major LGBTQ cases that the court considered during her time as a justice. Very quickly, President Donald Trump nominated and the Republican-led Senate confirmed Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Barrett is a religious conservative with a very different approach than that of Justice Ginsburg, and we're worried about how her voice could add to those of the other conservatives on the court in cases involving LGBTQ equality. Adding to that worry was a statement from Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Alito, barely two weeks after Ginsburg's death and before Barrett was even confirmed. The statement attacked the Obertoffel case, which established marriage equality for same-sex couples throughout the United States just five and a half years ago. In the November edition of Outcasting Overtime, we commented about that statement. Let's listen to an excerpt. Here at Outcasting, the Thomas Alito statement has sparked new conversations about marriage equality an issue that should have been settled by the Obergefell case. Let's be clear, marriage equality for LGBTQ people is about civil marriage under the law. It's not about religious marriage. There is no law forcing any religious institution to perform same-sex marriages, and the LGBTQ movement is not advocating for that. What we've won, and what Justices Thomas and Alito, and perhaps other members of the Supreme Court apparently want to take away from us, is the ability to get married, civilly, under the law. If our marriage rights get eroded or even erased entirely, what's next? Are they going to make it illegal for same-sex couples to adopt children? Will this conservative court reverse its own ruling from 2003 and take us all back to a time when states could criminalize same-sex behavior? The thrust of the Thomas Alito statement is that the Obergefell case has led to public criticism of people who hold anti-LGBTQ religious beliefs. In the justice's view, apparently, religious beliefs and the people who hold them should be immune from criticism. As if sincerely held religious beliefs, even when they harm other people, should actually be deemed elevated and pure and well-intentioned. But the fact is that religion has historically been a force of horrible oppression for LGBTQ people. It's only in recent decades that public opinion in the US has shifted, and most people have grown not only to tolerate LGBTQ people, but even to support our equality under the law. As that has happened, people have come to understand that religious condemnation of LGBTQ people is wrong, and they are rightly criticizing it. In whatever way you might define bigotry, it must certainly include a desire to deny civil rights to a group of people based on who they are. When bigotry is based on sincerely held religious beliefs, it's still bigotry. Marriage equality is simply part of the larger equality under the law guaranteed to all Americans by the Constitution. It harms exactly no one. So why are these people so opposed to it? Why are they so intent on trying to control other people's lives? 
you can hear the full commentary on the Outcasting Overtime page on our website, outcastingmedia.org. During his term as president, Donald Trump has been able to place three new conservative justices on the Supreme Court, including the filling of one seat that should have been filled by President Barack Obama. It's true that not all conservative justices are against LGBTQ equality. Just last June, in the case of Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, the court ruled 6-3 to three that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex and employment, applies to LGBTQ people. And we take notice that the court's opinion was written by Justice Neil Gorsuch and joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, both of whom are conservative, along with the four liberal justices on the court at the time, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, and Stephen Breyer. But we also take note that three of the court's most conservative justices, Brett Kavanaugh, Samuel Alito, and Clarence Thomas, either wrote or joined dissenting opinions disagreeing with the majority. Now that we'll have a Democratic administration headed by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris starting next month, we have reason to hope that the court won't be pushed in an even more conservative and potentially anti-LGBTQ direction in the near future. But many of the court's conservatives are relatively young and may be on the court for decades. And this makes the October statement of Justices Thomas and Alito very scary, especially with Barrett now on the court. The court is currently considering another case, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, in which a Catholic adoption agency is claiming that its religious beliefs give it a right to discriminate against same-sex couples. So the conflict between LGBTQ equality and religion continues in the law, and we'll have to watch carefully and see what happens. That's it for this fourth part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. We'll continue the series on the next edition of Outcasting. If you've missed any part of the series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Lucas, Sarah, Lil, Justin, Brian, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Sprouts is a weekly program produced in collaboration with community radio stations and independent producers across the country bringing you local radio productions of national interest. The program is coordinated and distributed by Pacifica Radio. Thanks to Brian David at Satellite Operations. If you or someone at your radio station has a production that you wish to rebroadcast on Sprouts, contact our air traffic controller, Ursula Rudenberg, at Ursula at Pacifica.org. That's U-R-S-U-L-A at Pacifica.org. I'm Chris. Thank you for listening. See you next time on Sprouts. It's 10.30 a.m. here on KBOO Community Radio, Portland, and it's time for Film at 11. First, a few announcements. The 30th Cascade African Film Festival is still going on through March 10th, and viewers can sign up via africanfilmfestival.org. While the Cascadia Library has a vast archive of films from the festival's history, S.W. Conser has an interview with Tracy Francis and Rhonda Neuenschwander, the two directors of the event, on his KBOO show, 
Words and Pictures, and there's a link on this episode's webpage. Also beginning today is the 44th Portland International Film Festival, which runs through March 14, with films that include uh, Minara, the story of a Korean family setting up a farm in the American